Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, you know, the truth is we didn't really have a chance to discuss the whole um, issue of the spies. And um, uh, we've talked about it so many times over the years and everything like that, but I found some fresh information on it. So, so I'm always very happy, especially since that, that, that is such a, such a turning point in, in the history of the world. Remember, just to set the context, the Jewish people are going from Mount Sinai right into Israel. It's a few days' journey. And, they're being, and it's being miraculously shortened, even. So the, it's, it's going to be fast. We're going to go into Israel. Moshe is going to lead us into the land. This is going to be basically the, the culmination of all of history. What happens is, is that the spies go, and they bring back a, a negative report of the land. And um, basically, there's a, a, a whole crisis of just who is God and what is God and does God mean well for us or is he out to kill us and everything like this and and the result of that whole crisis is the whole generation basically is going to die out in the desert and we wander for 40 years that was not the initial plan the initial plan was to go straight in it was only because of the spies that we do the 40 years of wandering so in that case you have to understand that in terms of sort of like skewing history the, the whole event of the spies was as impactful, or you could even argue more impactful than the whole golden calf. So it's, 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 um, it's worth spending time on, and it's worth trying to wrap our minds around. Okay, so, so here's, here's the, uh, the new beautiful thing that I learned. It was very inspiring to me, so hopefully you'll, you'll like it too. Um, and this is from the Afsraf Sarebi, um, who we've been learning from the Or Torah. Remember, he was one of the, our greatest tzaddikim. Um, he fasted a hundred years ago. He fasted for 40 years. 40 wow. years in a row. He ate a little bit at night. This is amazing. Like, it's amazing that this isn't more widely known in the world, that we had such a person, such a holy person. So it's a, it's a super privilege to be able to learn his Torah, right? To, to hear what... I mean, you can imagine where his mind was, how it was, must have been flying with the angels, right? Like, what were his insights into reality, into Torah? Like, wouldn't you like to know that? I, I would. That's why I'm learning the book. So, anyway, so here is something from him. So you can realize this is, like, precious. Okay. One, there's um, one of the more um, bizarre uh, Midrashim, which always stayed with me. I, I saw it in the Miam Loez years ago, and I you know, never knew what to make of it. And actually, it gets even more grotesque, but I'll just give you one, one detail from it, which is that one of the punishments of the spies was that after they gave their bad report, their tongues hung down to their belly buttons. Okay? And it actually gets, you know, kind of more way out than that. But, but that in itself, that piece of imagery... Like, their tongues, like, distending all the way down to their bellies. Like, what was that? Like, it just always stayed with me, just as a piece of, you know, imagery, right? But what, what is the Torah behind it? What was, what was the philosophy behind it? Because um, we have a, uh, a concept um, in Torah called Mira Kineged Mira, which means that, that essentially what we put into the world, and if you want to be a little more spiritual energy-wise is what, how God responds back to us. So there's a, there's, a, there's a real system in place. So anytime something happens, any, anything that's um, 
challenging in a person's life, they should always ask themselves, well, have I put that into the world? You know what I mean? And then that's just a way of investigating their own actions. And maybe it will lead to something, maybe it won't. But whenever you try to improve yourself and improve the world, there's always positive consequences. Whether you nailed it or not, who knows? But nonetheless, it's always, it's, it's always helpful. So using this concept of mita connected mita, we can understand on the simplest level that because they used their mouths, they gave a, a bad report about the land, right? They um, sort of undermined our trust in God. It would make sense that the, the implement of speech, the tongue, would become sort of like distended and, and, and grotesque, if you will. Okay? That's the simplest level, right? But let's get deeper than that. So the Asraf Sarebi, he quotes, I don't know if it's a Gomorrah or a Medrash, but he, he quotes something which is a very fascinating sort of like um, parallel that happens to all of us. So that's a parallel. When we're in the womb, our mouths are closed, but our belly buttons are open. Right? So, and then when we're born, our belly buttons are closed and our mouths are open. So let's just work through that, right? Everyone kind of knows that more or less anyway. When you're in the womb, you know, your, your lungs aren't working yet and everything like that, and we're not underwater creatures, so of course your mouth is open because that's, that's survival, right? But where are you going to get your nutrients from if you're not eating with your mouth? So God, in his, you know, infinity, devised this plan where you get a, you get a direct, like, feeding tube into your stomach, right? That's the umbilical cord. That's, that's actually amazing if you think about it. Okay, and then once you're born, it becomes reversed. Now that gets tied up, and now your mouth opens. And now that also means that you have to pursue your own livelihood. You have to gain your own food because your belly button's closed, right? So going out in the world and sort of making a living and negotiating life and everything like this, that requires the mouth being open. That's, that's, a, that's essentially an assertion of your power in the world. Okay? Your mouth being open. So the spies, when they saw how fortified the land was, they said, we can't do it. And they were right. We can't do it. But with God's help, we can do it. So what, where their thinking went awry was that thinking that God was no longer still helping us. So now with that in mind, listen to this brilliant, this brilliant analysis. So the Asraf Sarebi says, this is what God was saying when their tongues, this was the Mita Keneged Mita, the, the exact justice, if you will, of their tongues hanging down to their belly buttons. It was to show that God is still nourishing us. Even if our belly buttons are closed, God is still with us and he's still providing for us and he's still protecting us. It's true our mouths are open. We have to go out and we have to put an effort into the world. But don't think that God has stopped providing for us and don't think that God has stopped nourishing us. So as a result, because they thought that all the power was just with them, their tongue hung down to their belly button to say, no, the power is still with God. 
He wants you to put in effort, but he's still there helping you. And with him by your side, you can do, you can for sure conquer the land because God himself told you to conquer the land. So of course he's with you in this process. So, so let's, let's go further. That's the end of that thought. Let's go further. Um, because there's something very beautiful um, and it's an insight, I think, into uh, like uh, relationships as well. So just between, you know, friends, husband and wife, kids, all the rest. Um, after this decree, which is like a heavy duty decree of 40 years of wandering in the desert comes down, right? And, and, and being told that this whole generation is not going to go into the land, right? Because remember, it's Yehoshua who brings us into the land, not, not Moshe, right? So it's a whole shift that takes place. What happens is we get a mitzvah in the Torah, actually two mitzvahs in the Torah. One is uh, God tells us something beautiful. So he's just told us, You're not, this generation's not going in. Then, then, then the Torah says, um, when you do get into the land, mm-hmm. here's some mitzvahs. <laughs> Remember, mitzvah comes from, the root of the word mitzvah is tzav, which means a connection. Right? Because you think maybe the connection's broken. Maybe God just essentially severed the connection. So the first thing that God says right after this decree comes down is, but when you do come into the land, here's some mitzvahs. Like, okay? So, so how does that apply to relationships? So, so imagine, you see, you see, one of the things that, that I, I would tell anyone who wants to, or who is about to get married, right? And certainly anyone who's sort of like mentally preparing themselves for marriage, um, is that and no one would consciously think this, but, but those are the most uh, dangerous thoughts, the ones that you're not aware that you're thinking. You know? So we have to try to shine a light on those. That You know what marriage is? Marriage is a much, much, much more serious form of dating. <laughs> marriage is not a more serious form of dating. <laughs> marriage is a completely different realm. It's a completely different realm where... You are essentially committing yourself to the other person, and that's what it is. This is the rest of my life. Okay, now there are instances, and the Torah itself says this. I mean, the Catholic Church doesn't have this, right? But you, here you see that the Torah, that the, the Torah in its wisdom says, you know what? There are going to be couples that just simply don't get along. And so in order to protect peace, we have the mitzvah of divorce. Divorce is one of the 613 mitzvahs. It's a, it's a mitzvah. And I even heard, and I know this is not a widely done thing, and I, but there was a period where um, among certain people they would do something. It sounds a little crazy, which was that a husband and wife would get divorced just so they could get the mitzvah of being divorced, and then they would get remarried just so they can get the mitzvah of being remarried. <laughs> Like I say, this is not a widely done thing, and no one really does this, but it has been done. <laughs> because the idea that, you know, we have this like beautiful mitzvah, all the mitzvahs are beautiful. We have this awesome mitzvah called divorce, you know? 
But anyway, that's, that's very much an aside. That's a little historical oddity footnote. Okay, that's an aside. But in terms of our mindset, I'm just saying that one shouldn't say, what, do you, what is he talking about? You go into a marriage and you say, this is absolutely it for the rest of my life, and the guy's beating me up? Like, are you insane? So I just want you to know that there is an out, there is an exit strategy that's from God, you know, and sanctified, absolutely. However, that, that being hopefully not the case, since the two of you are nice people and you're going to get along, one's attitude is that this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. I am 1,000% committed to making this work no matter what. Okay. Now, now imagine in that type of a relationship, you have a big fight. And Reb Shlomo said so beautifully one time, the question is not how much you love each other when you love each other. The question is how much do you love each other when you hate each other? That's the, that's the real question in a relationship, right? So, so that's, that's what keeps a marriage together, a friendship together, whatever it is. How much do you love each other when you hate each other? Right? So, so now imagine you have a big fight with someone that you love, right? And you're screaming at each other, and then the person says, and don't forget... We have that dinner date Friday night. (laughs) There's something very beautiful about that because you realize, you know what? I'm in this relationship forever. And even if we have big fights, I have the security of knowing that this relationship is, is still ongoing. And that means a lot. That means a lot because can you imagine you're, you know, we have a a word in Yiddish called spilkas. I'm on spilkas. Right? And they translate that as walking on eggshells. So imagine, you know how fragile eggshells are. How can you walk on eggshells without breaking the eggshells? So it's the idea, like if you say, I'm on spilkas, that means that, that when you're talking to someone, you're afraid anything that you say is going to cause an argument. Anything that you say is going to be the wrong thing. You can't have a, a real relationship with someone while you're on spilkas. You can't. So, 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 but if you can create an atmosphere of security between you and your loved one, where there's a sense that even if things are going to yelling crazy territory, that the relationship itself is not in danger, right? Then that's a very beautiful place to be. That's a very safe environment. Okay, so God is creating a very safe environment here. He's saying, look, you know, this went horribly awry, right? And this is the domino effect of these actions. But when you get into the land, right? Because if I hear I'm not going into land for 40 years, what am I thinking? I'm never going into the land. Or I'm going to do something else wrong. And then, then, then it's going to be 100 years. Then it's going to be 200 years. And who knows if it's even ever going to happen. So God goes out of his way to tell us, but when you go into the land, here's what I want you to do. Here are the mitzvahs. Here's the, here's the connection that's never been broken and never will be broken. Okay. So that's, that's sort of like a relationship bit of advice, hopefully. Um, and now let's go further. So what mitzvah do we get exactly? Because remember, 
God is God. He's got no shortage of wonders and beautiful things to teach us, and the Torah is infinite. So, so whatever mitzvah that we get at that moment, that's going to be a really good mitzvah, right? It's not just going to be, okay, here's a mitzvah. It's like, well, what mitzvah? And then this is going to give us an even deeper insight in how to deal with um, problems, <laughs> problems, basically. So we get this, um, we get this mitzvah. I'm, I'm looking at the English word here. That's like one of these old-fashioned words that make people think that the Torah is irrelevant. The libations. <laughs> uh-huh. Hey, okay, so <laughs> we, get the, we get the mitzvah of the libation. What are the libations? Okay. So there is um, there there as everybody knows there were all sorts of offerings that we brought to the to the holy temple, and um, and we brought them to this like very large altar called the mizbeach, okay, and and the mizbeach also in addition to certain animals that were brought and remember only kosher animals were brought which is kind of interesting, right, and that's why they had to check the wood for worms. Because otherwise you'd be bringing a worm as an offering, and a worm's not a kosher. It's not one of the category of offerings that you bring. So interesting. Um, but an aside, and I'll tell you something else. But I always thought it was beautiful when the um, Nazir. Remember, there were certain people who um, decided to live in a place of abstinence, and they would grow out their hair, like Samson had long hair, right? Because he was a Nazir. People who grew out their hair for a period of time, but then they decided, okay, you know what? I've separated myself from certain activities, but now I want to rejoin society in terms of these things, like drinking wine, for instance. So what would they do? They would cut their hair, because that was a way of saying that they're no longer a Nazar, right? They would cut their hair. Where would they put their hair? Hmm. So they would actually put their hair on the altar in the Holy Temple. And that was an acceptable, that was in a category of, of acceptable offerings. Can you imagine? Isn't that interesting? So, so I'll tell you something. I, I just heard this, a, a sort of a very kind of, you know, intense piece of Jewish history. Uh, they just found a, a trove of archives um, from one of the villages that was uh, wiped out by the Nazis, okay? Just mass slaughter. And they were looking through one of the uh, books and they found, they found a Torah book, right? This just happened. And inside the book, they were turning the pages. Inside the book, they found a man's, a Jewish man's beard that he, that, that, you know, in order to save your life and things like that, people were cutting off their beards because, or the Nazis were making them cut off their beards. There were all different versions of this. In this version, it seems to have been a a voluntary thing, an an act of survival in order for him to be able to escape or do something like that. But he took his beard and he placed it in the Torah. And it was on the page of... I'm not sure where it was exactly, on the page of Tochacha or something like that. Of, or, but, but, but can you imagine? He, he, just like the Nazar who cuts off his hair, and it's like, what do you do with the hair? Well, you have to put it in the holiest place. So he cut off his beard, and he had this question. Right? He was sitting there with his beard in his hand. 
What am I going to do with my beard? And throw it out? He said, my beard's holy. So he said, I'll put it in the Torah. And they just found it. They found it. It's like 50 years later or something like that. They just found it. You know, there are certain things you have to understand when you, when you lock into like real godliness. Everything is forever. That's like one of the, just the beautiful ways of trying to live a more elevated life is that you absolutely break through the temporal bonds and you start to live in a different space, which is this eternal space, you know? So, <clears throat> okay, so one of the things that we brought on the Mizbeach was a wine offering, okay? And there were two holes in the Mizbeach and you poured the wine into these two holes and they would go down pipes into this little kind of ditch on the bottom, okay? So, <clears throat> so the first thing that's discussed after the decree, so remember we say, okay, God says, okay, 40 years you're going to wander. But when you go into the land, we have some mitzvahs, right? So let's think positive. We're going to get back on track in terms of this relationship. And, and God references this wine offering on the Mizbeach. So Rabbi Wolfson has a beautiful, 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 for me anyway, explanation, explanation of what's going on here. And this is going to help us, I hope, in our own lives in terms of, you know, dealing with moments of crisis and things like that. So the question is, you know, in, 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 uh, <clears throat> we know the first person was called Adam. And Adam comes from the word Adama, which means ground, earth. Because God took earth and he formed him into a human shape and then he breathed life into him, breathed our souls into us. Okay? And so the question is, and if you think about it, it's, it's, just, it's just such a Jewish question. Where did God get the earth from? <laughs> like, why wouldn't you just assume that he took it from the Garden of Eden? Like, well, how is it even a question? I just love the fact that the textual analysis goes to that place that that question even is a question. So, so there are two answers that are given. And neither of them are from the earth from the Garden of Eden. <laughs> Because I think it says God planted man there, which suggests a, a, a moving, that he put him there. So, so then where did the earth come from? Okay. So the first opinion is that he took earth from the four corners of the world. And, and that on a deep level, I don't really understand this Torah, but I'll tell it to you anyway. On a deep level, it's because after 120, when man gets buried, the earth will recognize man as one of its own and accept man. Like, I don't know why that would have to be the case. Like, if I wanted to bury someone in a wall, like, I don't have to make them out of wall <laughs> to be put into a wall. Why would the earth need to have man accepted as man to return to the earth? But... I don't know, on some deep level, that's just the spiritual mechanics of it. The earth would take its own, basically. 
Okay, that's that's the first that's the first explanation. And I want to add something because I had a thought on that, which is that you know if you learn out the whole story of eating from the tree of knowledge, you you understand on some level that man was supposed to leave the Garden of Eden. Okay? It didn't have to be like that, but it seems like it was God's plan always that we were going to leave the Garden of Eden. It seems that way, without going into into all the details. Okay. So that being the case, do you know what it means? Do you know how vaccines work? Vaccines work in a very counterintuitive way. The last thing I want in the entire world is polio. You know what? I'm going to make sure you never get polio. You know how I'm going to do it? I'm going to put some polio in you. What? Get that away from me. No, no, no. This is going to help you never get polio. What? (laughs) I mean, it sounds, it sounds, it doesn't make any sense. But the way it works is that the tiniest bit is put into a person's body. Then the body learns how to deal with it, how to overcome it. And then if the, if the virus actually ever entered into the body for real, the body already has a game plan and already knows how to deal with it. And so it's like, oh, that's easy. I know that one. Bang. Done. Okay? So with that in mind, I want to say the following. Why was, why, if we were created to live in the Garden of Eden, why did God create us out of land from the four corners of the world outside of the Garden of Eden? And I want to say because he wanted to inoculate us against the exile. In other words, if we had within us the stuff of exile from the very start, we would understand how we could overpower and overcome that exile when we had to confront it, which was the plan seemingly all along. Okay, so that's explanation number one. But remember, we still are trying to answer why is God telling us about these wine offerings, these wine libations, after we're, we're, we've done this huge mistake with the spies, right? So the second explanation, and Rabbi Wolfson brings this, is that the Medrash says that God scooped up ground from where the Mizbeach, where the altar of the Holy Temple was going to go. And that's what we were made out of. Out of that ground, we were made out of that earth. Now, you gotta, you got to process this, because this is an amazing, amazing thought, okay? That means we are literally made out of forgiveness. Your flesh and blood, your flesh, your flesh, is literally made out of forgiveness. Because what was the Mizbeach? What was the altar? And remember, the earth that we're made out of came from where the Mizbeach was going to go, okay? The Mizbeach was a series of offerings that people would bring in order to, you know, rectify, to fix, like whatever we had done wrong, basically. And by the way, one of the categories, just as an aside, one of the categories of offerings is called the Korban Toda. That means it's translated in English as the Thanksgiving offering. That means that, you know why I'm in the Holy Temple with this offering, God? Not because I did anything wrong, just because I love you! <laughs> thank you! Here, here it is. Here's just my thank you offering. 
And when Mashiach comes, and when the world reaches this state of where human beings evolve to the next level, where we don't do anything wrong anymore, because the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, no longer exists, there's only going to be one category of offering left, and that's going to be the Korban Toda, just the Thanksgiving offering. In other words, we won't need the other categories of offering because we won't have to fix anything, but gratitude never gets old. <laughs> gratitude never goes out of style. Just like... You know, never does. If you run out of things, you, like you want to talk to God, right? Like Rabbi Nachman says, you have to talk to God. Like you're in a relationship. That's your closest relationship in the world. I don't care how much you love fill in the blank. Your closest relationship is with God. God is keeping you going every single moment. So you got to talk to God. You have to actually physically talk to God, right? Because imagine... How long have you been married? 25 years. Do you have a good marriage? I have the best marriage in the world. Do you talk to your wife? Never. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the guy, the person's deluded. Something, something wrong is going on. So that's us and God. So when you're driving in your car, talk to God. When you're walking to Ralph's, talk to God, right? Right? When you're tying your shoes, talk to God. So a lot of times you want to talk to God, right? But you don't know what to say. So you're stuck. What do I say? So you know what never goes off? You just start with thank you. <laughs> thank you, God. Ah, oh, I'm so glad. Thank you for these shoes. I'm so glad I have shoes. You know, thank you for these shoes. And you know what? These shoes wouldn't stay on my feet without these shoelaces. They really thank you for the shoelaces. <laughs> you know? And then once you get into a thank you kind of run... You can just go on and on, and then you loosen up, and then you can talk about whatever's in your heart. So the Korban Toda, that Thanksgiving offering, even when all the other categories of offerings go away, gratitude will always still be in style. Okay. But let's return back to the idea. <clears throat> that we're made out of forgiveness. Because the great majority of the offerings that are brought are in order to fix something. Are in order to gain some form of forgiveness. So when you think that the earth that we were formed out of was made from the headquarters of forgiveness, then how do you feel about yourself? Listen carefully. How do you feel about yourself when you come face to face with your own limitations? See, this is one of the most fundamental questions of human existence. How, what do you do when you come face to face with your own limitations? Because this is the moment, that's like the inflection point, right? That is the moment where People, like, go rogue, if you will, right? That's like, that is your invitation to any type of behavior under the sun. Because there's a moment of panic. There's a moment of panic, existential panic, essentially, that takes place where you just don't know who you are or what to do and... Like your 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 lizard mind, so to speak, your 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 primal essence, your nefesh behema, whatever vocabulary term you want to use, right? 
just says, like the red lights start flashing and it's just like, escape, run, run, escape. And then everyone's got their various laundry list of weaknesses and it's usually just a straight line to one of those. Or to several of those. So a person, if you want to inoculate yourself against the exile, this is the deepest form of personal exile, when a person confronts their own limitations. At that moment, you have to remember, I am literally made out of forgiveness. I'm literally made out of forgiveness. You can just hold your hands. You can just squeeze your hands. You can just look at your actual flesh and understand that you were made from this scoop of earth underneath the Mizbeach, underneath the altar of the Holy Temple. That's where you come from. That's what you're made out of. In other words, put a different way, we, we have to strive to be the best that we can be. Right? But on the other hand, God 1,000% understands our humanity. 1,000%. And we can't... See, this is where it gets a little more exacting. Because you can't fool God and you can't try to manipulate God with your own quote-unquote humanity. But your humanity is a reality that he understands and takes very, very seriously. So one of the, you know, classic, classic, classic Hasidic stories, which you all know, but we have to say it, is Reb Zusha said, you know, I'm not afraid at the end of my life when I stand before the heavenly court that God is going to say to me, why weren't you like Moshe Rabbeinu. Why didn't you reach the level of Moshe Rabbeinu? What I'm terrified is that is is that God is going to say Zusha. Why weren't you Zusha? Right? And that, if you if you think about that, that you know just can make you cry a river. You know. So that that's this incredibly delicate balance which is understanding our humanity, understanding the fact that we make mistakes, stopping the crisis at the moment when we come face to face with our own limitations by understanding that we're made out of forgiveness, which means that if God is already forgiving us, you know, don't be holier than God. You have to forgive yourself too. You know, because if God's forgiving you, what do you think, what, what do you think you're accomplishing by not forgiving yourself? You think you're being holier than God? I mean, let's, let's be real. Let's be real. At a certain point, that's just a misguided form of arrogance at that point, not forgiving yourself. Because it's refusing to accept the fact that you're an imperfect being. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what's going on in the you know, deeper reaches of your consciousness, is that given the fact that I'm certainly perfect, how could I have made a mistake? So I can't forgive myself because I'm perfect. So since I want to hold on to my own idea of my own perfection, I can't allow myself to forgive myself because that means that I'm not perfect and I refuse to let go of that idea. I mean, all of this stuff is not 
no one consciously thinks these things, but th this is the logic that's going on beneath the surface of our beneath the surface of our minds. So you say, okay, God's forgiving me, so I have to forgive me. Okay, so what do I have to do to make it right? Who do I have to apologize to? Right? What, what do I have to do? I'll, I'll do whatever I need to do to make it right. So, so let's go further. Let's go further. Now, we talk about forgiveness now, okay? And you say, okay, well, maybe God forgives me. Maybe I even forgive me. But at that point, I am, let's face it, officially a loser. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, you know, it's, I can just look it up. I can just, you know, I can just Google me, my name, an official loser. And it comes right up, really. And I can tell you how many tenths or thousands of a second it took for Google to arrive at the fact that this is enshrined somewhere on the Internet, right? So that's not the case. A person is not a loser. A person is not a loser. They're not. They are not. And we continue to learn this from the spies. Now listen to this. We have a concept of a minion. A minion is 10 men above the age of 13. And it's just this spiritual construct, basically. Okay? And, and it's 10 men. So you say, okay, well, why not 10 women? Right? You can, it's a perfectly good question. Or you could say, why not nine men? Or why not 11 men? Like, where are you giving me this number and you're telling me all these things, like you can say this with a minion, but you can't say that with a... Where's it all coming from, 10 men? So, it's based on a historical event. It's not just sort of like, well... You know, this sounds good. What's the historical event? So this is, this is from the Gomorrah, this is from the Talmud. Talmud says, how do we know that, that, that ten men make a minion? Because it uses the word Eda. Eda means like a congregation. And we find this word Eda used in describing, listen very carefully, Twelve spies went to spy out the land. Remember, these are the. Th this is a turning point in the whole history of the world. Two of them give a good report. Kalev and Yoshua give a good report. Okay, but how many does that leave? Who gave the bad report? Not just the bad report, but the devastating, horrible report, which throws a whole generation out of Israel and forty years of wandering. 12 minus 2 equals what? 10. So you say, wait a second. And the word Eda is used in terms of this congregation of men by the spies, by the 10 spies, not the 12 spies, the 10 spies. So you say, these were the lowest rats in history. Would it? They're the model of the, of the ideal congregation or they're the foundation stone of the I, which 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 allows me to to read the Torah which allows me to say Baruch which allows me to say Kaddish which I, I can't say I, all these things and you're telling me it's based on these ten guys 
So how valuable is every single soul? Right? Rabbi Wolfson makes this point. How valuable is every single person? That the definition of a congregation is based on the 10 people who probably we would want to identify with with the least, but nonetheless, they're part of us, and since they're part of us, we need them. Because we need everybody. Because everybody is needed. Even after you make the biggest mistake in the world, you're still needed. You don't stop being needed. And the proof is, a minion which is a very holy idea. We're ten men, why ten men, right? Why not ten women? Why not nine men? Why not eleven men? Because it's based on the ten spies who gave the awful report. These guys, these actual guys. So now, let's go further with this idea, because we really have to understand this. It's a very central idea. When we shake the lulav in Esrik, everybody knows, you know, there's four species, the Arbaminim, right? You've got the Esrog, you've got the Hadassim, you've got the Lulav, and then you've got the Aravas. And they all stand for something else. And everybody knows that the Aravas stand for people who aren't doing mitzvahs and they're not learning any Torah. And yet, so you say, wait a second, they're part of the, they're part of the group too? Like, don't we want to get rid of those guys? What are you talking about? Not only don't we want to get rid of them, you literally, if you say, you know what, uh, you know, maybe it's okay for you to hold on to the group that's got no mitzvahs and no learning, but you know what, I'm on a little bit of a holier level, and for me it's just going to be the Esrig and the Lulav and the Hadassim. You know, but I don't look down on you. I just want you to know, I don't look down on you (laughs) for associating yourself with those guys. The bracha that you would make on three out of the four would be a bracha levatala, and, and you absolutely wouldn't be doing the mitzvah. You can't do the mitzvah without the aravas. The people who stand for doing nothing. You, you, it's not a mitzvah without them. You know, the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, was famous for davening with a minion of, spy, uh, of, of thieves. Right? Like one time, you know, I don't know if it was every davening, but one time, there's a classic story. Reb Shlomo told this in Poland when he went to Poland. He said one time the, uh, the Basham Tob was davening with these thieves, right? And someone said to him, like, really, you know, thieves? You have thieves as part of your minion? Why? And the Basham Tob said back, because... I saw, spiritually speaking, that the gates of heaven were closed and I needed some holy thieves to pick open the lock. (laughs) Right? So, there's a lot to that, right? There's a lot to that. Um... So why, why do we need the people who aren't doing anything? Because we're all one soul. And that's us too. We're all one soul. We're one family. We're one soul. That's what it is. And, and we need each other. And, and also, 
Maybe the person's not doing anything now. Maybe they're a thief now. But who says they're going to be a thief this afternoon? What do I know? Because they're a thief now, they're going to be a thief their whole life? You said that. I didn't say that. Right? So with that in mind, with that in mind, understanding that Every, all of us have potential, and the potential never goes away. And that even if we reach the lowest levels, like the spies reach the lowest level, that still that becomes the foundation for, for how we actually calculate what a minion is, right? Which allows us to do all sorts of holy things. So we need, we need each other. We need each other because we're all one. Okay. Now, I'll just wrap it up with one more point, because... There's something, when you, when, you, when you really try to investigate the Torah in seriousness, it's nice to see an idea in philosophy, but the real kind of like scholarship goes then, where do I see it in halacha? So you, where do you see the idea that we're all one in halacha itself, in Jewish law itself? Okay, or halacha is law, but... Really, a better translation is it just means the way. There's like a kind of a Zen quality to that, to that word that, that's often not conveyed when we say law. It just means like the flow, the divine harmony of things. And this is how we live in order to be in harmony with ourselves in the world. Okay, so where do you see it in, in Halakha? This idea that we're all one, one soul. And so we mentioned blessings. And so... For instance, we, when we say a blessing, Hashem, right? We say God's name, Master of the Universe, you know. So that's supposed to be like a moment of like recognition and awe. And we don't want to just casually use Hashem's name. Like you might think that, oh, you know, like here, this would be like the greatest thing in the world. I've got an apple. I say, and I bite the apple. I go, oh God, that apple was so good. I can't wait to take another bite. And you're holding the same apple. And you take another bite. And then you say another bro, and you take another bite. And you say another. Now, I, I could see a way where you would say, that guy is like super holy. Like, I want to be friends with that guy, right? But according to Jewish law, we say, get that guy out of here. What is he doing? He already made a blessing on the apple. What is he doing? Just throwing around God's name willy-nilly. What's he doing? Right? Because there's this moment of awe. And actually, and again, this is maybe a little bit counterintuitive. It, it was for me initially. If you don't know whether to make a blessing, you're not supposed to make the blessing. And I would have thought the more blessings, the better. Yes, in the appropriate context, but not to use God's name casually. Because again, there's this level of awe that's in, 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 you know. So, and in fact, if you make a blessing when you shouldn't have made a blessing, that's called, that's in, in halacha, we call that a bracha levatala, which means, um, and, the, and, and the rabbis compare that to actually using God's name in vain. Okay, so that's even one of the Ten Commandments. So that's, we just understand a little bit the seriousness of this. Okay, so now with that little bit of um, homework in place, let's, let's, let's go to this example. 
again, we're trying to answer the question, where do you see in halacha that we're all one soul? All right? So, so we have a mitzvah on Shabbos to make Kiddush. Right? We're going to say the blessing over the wine. And, um, and so, I may, let's say, I, let's say I, I'm making Kiddush. And I say, you know, Right? Now, now, someone now walks into the room and they didn't hear Kiddush. I can then pick up the wine and, and make Kiddush for them, ending with, and now a new person walks in the room, they didn't hear Kiddush. Oh, can you make Kiddush for me? Yeah. What is going on? What's going on that I can make Kiddush for this person and this person and this person seemingly saying the same brucha over and over again, which we just said that you're not supposed to do, right? And the answer is, now listen very carefully, the answer is, that person has a mitzvah to hear Kiddush. And since we're all one soul, if they haven't heard Kiddush, on some level, I haven't heard Kiddush. Because we, we're all one soul. <laughs> That's halacha. That's not a nice thought. That's halacha. As long as you're lacking something, I'm lacking something. You know, in a different context, Reb Shlomo said, a person doesn't even know what joy is unless they can be happy for someone else's joy. Unless they can have joy in someone else's joy, you don't know what joy is. Right? Because, because we're one soul. So yeah, it may have happened to you, but if it happened to you on a very deep level, it also happened to me. Because we're all one. Okay. So, so let's just review. Um, when you're in the womb, the belly button's open, but the mouth's closed. And then when you're born, the belly button closes, but the mouth's open. But don't think that just because your mouth's open and you have to put in effort for your food, that God's not still nourishing you. He still is, right? And also keep in mind that when you're in a relationship, you want to create a safe space so that you're not on spilkas with the other person. So the person knows even if you have a disagreement, even a fight, you know that the relationship is still intact. So, so that's important too. And to know that, that God created us from the earth underneath the Mizbeach. Right? The headquarters, the altar, the headquarters of forgiveness. We're literally made out of forgiveness. Your flesh and blood is forgiveness. And so when you confront your own limitations, just remember that. And that will help you not to panic. Just to understand. And that if God's forgiving you, you can also forgive you. Right? And to understand that there's no such thing as a loser, really. You know? Everyone's counted. That the whole idea of the minion comes from the ten spies who sent history like down the drain in, in, in some way, you know? And yet that's the model of the minion because all of us count, because all of us are one and we're not complete without each other. Okay. Yeah. Now for some questions and answers. Yeah, so can you, so what you discussed about forgiveness was absolutely 
maybe touch upon after you've forgiven yourself and you know Hashem forgives you. What if the other person doesn't forgive you? Okay, so it may be that that's the case. And then you just, you got to move on. You know? You know, we, we have a concept that um, you ask forgiveness three times. And if the person says no after the third time, you've done your part and moving on. You know, we even have the concept of going to a person's grave and asking for forgiveness. And many people at funerals, Jewish funerals, go up to the coffin and they, and they ask for, we say often the word mechila, you know, that's forgiveness. We ask for mechila. Um, and uh, that's, that's a real thing. I'll tell you something. The chief rabbi of Israel, rabbi at the time, Rabbi Lau, at Reb Shlomo Karlbach's funeral, said that the entire world has to, has to ask Reb Shlomo for mechila. The entire world. The chief rabbi of Israel said this at Reb Shlomo's yeah. Levaya. Yeah. yeah. Yep, you can read a transcript. There are transcripts of it. I've read it. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, so at the beginning you were mentioning a rabbi. Uh, I didn't catch his name, but you said eight once a day. Yeah, eight, yeah, yeah. He fasted for 40 years. What is his name? The Astrafser Rebbe. Okay. And yeah. what did he eat? His name was Meir Yechiel Halevi. Okay. Meir Yechiel Halevi. What did he eat? <laughs> yeah, right. So he said that he fasted because he didn't have schus avos, meaning he, all the rebbe's at that time in Jewish history, Jewish history had become, I mean, Hasidic, the Hasidic world had become dynastic at that point, meaning unless you, your father was a rebbe, you weren't a rebbe. Like in the beginning of the Hasidic revolution, Basically, Rebbe's were popping up all over the place, right? But then it became sort of like, um, it became, it won. Like the spiritual revolution that took place within Judaism won. And it became the norm at that point. And so one of the sort of like the uh, repercussions of it becoming the norm was that where Rebbe's were coming from was from other Rebbe's at that point, right? However, late in Hasidic history, this amazing figure, Rabbi Meir Yechiel Halevi, his father was a baker. And he became the number two Rebbe behind the Ger Rebbe in terms of Hasidim in Poland, right at the turn of the century. That's like very, that's extremely unusual. And he said he didn't have schus avos, meaning that he wasn't descended from a, a line of at least outwardly Tzadikim, you know, like super holy men who were leaders of, you know, the generation. And he felt that fasting for 40 years in that way was a way for him to, for his prayers to be, and his blessings to be more effective. But listen, someone who does that had a lot on his mind. And I am saying not even the tip of the iceberg. I'm not even within 100 feet of the iceberg in terms of explaining what he had going on in his mind when he did that, you know. And just, just to make the point, because I just, I just find this fascinating, the halacha is you can't fast on Shabbos, but if you do fast on Shabbos, the way to repair having fasted on Shabbos is by fasting for having fasted on Shabbos. So he fasted on Shabbos, 
but he was always fasting anyway, so it was never an issue. But the Ger Rebbe would come to him and beg him not to fast on Shabbos. But he still felt as though he, he that this was the proper thing, you know. Do you know what he ate? I don't know, but mm-hmm. but I'm, I'll try to find out. I'll try to find out. Yeah. Gandhi ate some cashew, I believe. Yeah. Is, isn't that right? I, I don't he know. I know he drank his own urine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, but I, I don't know about I don't know oh. about the cashews. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against him that uh, he had something in mind there. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how to formulate it exactly, but it's hard to sometimes, I guess, wrap your mind around this. You know, the tzaddikim are held on such a high level right. that they're more accountable, I guess, right. than you. Right. So that um, why some of the holy tzaddikim weren't forgiven, or, or you know, they, the spies made mistakes, and why, but maybe it's, it's generational because this death is a form of Yeah, well, we've discussed this point um, a lot of times, and I, I think just what, why was the why was the uh, verdict against the spies and the generation so intense? And to me, it just all goes back to the fact that we really we really thought that God was out to get us, that God was out to get us, that that God was leading us into the land in order to wipe us out. And that that meant that on a very deep level, the generation thought God wasn't good. And God realized at that point, you know what, I can't do business with, with, with this generation. I think it's even more than that. It's more than a lack of gratitude. It's it's a fundamental misunderstanding of who God is. You know, that that to think that I'm in a relationship with a all-powerful being who wants to kill me is is that's just a that's a deal breaker. It's a deal breaker if that's what a person thinks that their life is and that that's what this world is. That God created a, a people, a world, in order to menace them, like that, that is just so, it's just so off. And, you know, I, I just want to say this, you know, we talk about in, in Pirkei Avos, it talks about all the great attributes that a person should have, a good eye, a good neighbor, to be a good friend. And then one of the sages says, the greatest attribute is to have a good heart. And then the, their Rebbe, who was asking this question, said yes. That's the right answer because all those other wonderful things are contained within having a good heart. So I just want to say my own shot right now, my own explanation, just very simple. What is a good heart? I want to say it's knowing that God is good. What does it mean to have a good heart? It means to know that God is good.